I've realized that I live my life just constantly bouncing between tea that I let get too cold and tea that I can't drink because it's scorching hot. Mmm, a relatable problem. I am obsessed with my new mug, uh, my my new thermos. It's got a handle. Oh, oh, she yeah. has a handle. She has a handle. <laughs> Uh, it's very fancy. And the problem is that it doesn't let anything get cold ever. It'll stay hot forever. So I now, when I boil water, will like obsessively watch the kettle mm. till it gets to the temperature I know I can stand. Oh, your kettle has a temperature dial. That's... It doesn't. I just have got... <laughs> I know my, my kettle and I know each other so well. I can touch the side of it. And based on the feeling and how much steam is coming out the front, I know. You touch the side of a kettle that you're trying to boil on a hot stove. Okay, you know what, Tracy? It's an electric kettle. It's an electric kettle, so it's not metal. <laughs> I have a Yeti mug, so I Me get too. the- That's the mug I was using. I just didn't- yes. I, I felt weird brand name dropping. I have a Yeti mug. It's kind mug. of- It's a bougie thing to say, because they're it is. very Well, because I have a Yeti mug. I have two Yeti mugs and a Yeti water bottle, all three of which- were gifts. So I've never purchased a Yeti. All of mine were gifts. <laughs> yes. The ultimate gift. <laughs> Actually, this is this is a next level story. Last time I was at the Cannes Film Festival, the American Pavilion was giving out Yeti water bottles just to everyone who came in. And out of all of the film festival swag, that could have been the crystal skull of items like I did not mm. let that thing out of my sight I made sure it made it through customs Th like this yeah. was my baby now oh my god that is a that is a next level story when you were at the, the international <laughs> film festival <laughs> you got a yeti water bottle the problem is that you have to put the item into the water bottle at the perfect temperature and I was not made for finding the perfect temperature of a beverage. Mm. I'll teach you my ways. Also, I just have an extremely high tolerance for for hot beverages. Like, objectively, too. I'm too powerful because I'll <laughs> hand people drinks I think is appropriate, and then it burns them. Hmm, I see. This is your secret evil plan disguised as a nicety. Mm -hmm. Here's your tea. You caught me. <laughs> you caught me. I want to give everyone mild, uncomfortable mouths. Yeah, when your tongue is burnt and you can't taste anything and you're just up, up, my whole life is over. I have this weird thing mm -hmm. in my Because cause mouth things, skull things of any kind, it's over. You can think about nothing else. It takes up your entire existence. You're a villain. I get it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> the, the the god the worst kind of villain in in every sense just in that's a sad villain to be and also that's an annoying villain to have i would say the villain that commits constant small acts of evil that cannot be prosecuted as crime and are not worthy of insta death is a worse villain than you know Loki, whoever. You just, you just described what having anxiety and or depression is like as a villain in a story. Yes! <laughs> 
it's just tiny little things that constantly get in your way, constantly break you down until one minute little thing sets you over the edge. You know what? I think this is our moment. Hey, heroes. <laughs> hey, villains. Hey, gods, uh, mortals, future love interests, monsters. Hi, welcome to our podcast. I'm Rowan Hall. I'm Tracy Harrison. And this is Willing and Fable, a podcast where we talk about ancient myths, local legends, and enemies to lovers' story arcs. My favorite kind. Get that. Get those characters who bicker. You got to have the banter. You got to have the scene where one has the dagger to the other's throat and then it flips and then the other one has the dagger to the other's throat and they're equally matched, but they hate each other, but they're into it, but they don't want to be. Yeah, absolutely. And mm-hmm. and it has to be written so that you're, as a reader, going, am I rooting for the villain? Am I? Do I want the villain to win? Oh, God. Do I like the villain? Oh. <laughs> oh, God. Should I be feeling this way? Oh, yeah. I can recommend some books where you're like, I really like this character and I know I shouldn't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's also how going through life is. Mm. Speaking of enemies to lovers, wow, this is a weird one. This is our Valentine's Day episode. Uh, Valentine's mm-hmm. Day is just around the corner for you all. It's a godforsaken holiday, but we decided we should do something about it. We did. And if you want to get someone special in your life, a little something special, and support us, you can head over to patreon.com slash willingandfable, get a Patreon subscription. You can also go to willingandfable.com slash merch and get some Willing and Fable merch. Or you can just listen to us tell you about Valentine's Day and our spin on it. Now, as every good wedding toast begins... Oh, no. (laughs) According to Encyclopedia Britannica... Yes, yes. (laughs) Valentine's Day has origins in the Roman festival of Lupercalia held in mid-February. The festival, which celebrated the coming of spring, included fertility rites and the pairing off of women with men by lottery. At the end of the 5th century, Pope Galasius I replaced Lupercalia with St. Valentine's Day. All I can imagine is the Romans with scratch-offs trying to hook up (laughs) with the person that they want in a lottery. (laughs) togas and scratch offs is my band name and you can't have it okay what are you talking about i'm your i'm your uh cool bass player obviously and that's the only instrument i could think of okay obviously all right so it's our band name it's (laughs) okay this is the part where we could we could do a deep dive into the origins of Valentine's Day, because that would be on brand and it would mm-hmm. be a fun time had by all. And we would tell you two famous candy heart love stories. And in the end, Lady X and Man Y would ride off into the sunset after spending a very long time communicating poorly and then kissing about it until a child appeared. <laughs> But we're not going to do that. Instead, we're bucking the aggressively hetero marketing that surrounds the cards, flowers, awful jewelry commercials, and dinner dates of St. Valentine's Day. And today, our episode is focusing on two fantastical gay stories from history. Tracy, be honest. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. 
How giddy were you when we decided this was going to be an all-history episode? I texted you about it. <laughs> I texted you. <laughs> Rowan, Rowan, Rowan set that question up <laughs> so that I could talk about yes. how much I'm learning I enjoy doing these history episodes, especially kind of the biography ones, which is what we're doing today. There's just something that's so satisfying about having the ability to go through someone's entire life and talk about their achievements and then use that as fuel for a story. It just feels both the easiest way to do what we do and also one of the most satisfying and fun, which is a rare combination. I'm in a weird place today. I'm just imagining taking a historical figure and putting them under intense historical pressure until they become coal and we can use them as fuel. Not even diamonds. Wow, you just want to stop at the coal and use them as fuel. <laughs> you said fuel. We don't get to progress to diamonds. Fuel. Although a diamond would be fuel for a proposal. Valentine's oh, Look at her. Day. She's going. She's nailing it. She's making those connections left and right, y'all. <laughs> this is my job, everyone. Okay. <laughs> so... I have to tell this story because it makes me giggle to this day. When we planned this episode, mm -hmm. <laughs> Tracy goes, who was that female arsonist and then ran out of the no, room? No, I added one other detail. I added one other detail. No, 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 about no, no, no. We're not saying the other detail yet because I want to have a big reveal. Okay. All right. So I added one other detail that you'll find out. <laughs> okay. And she ran out of the room and Tracy is talking to me on headphones so I can hear everything she's saying just out of frame. She's yelling at Tim, our resident historian, going, mm -hmm. who is that woman who blah, 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 blah. And the whole time I am <laughs> shouting the woman's name into the phone and Tracy cannot hear it because she doesn't have her headphones in, which was infuriating because I never know the answer before Tim. I never ever, ever have the answer before him, and this time I did. What does it feel like to have lived the true ghost experience? <laughs> <laughs> One, it would not be my true ghost experience because should I die young, beautiful, in a Victorian gown, that's how it's going to mm -hmm. be, um, I'm coming back and haunting you, and there's uh -huh. no way... You can't hear me. <laughs> Other people, maybe. But if I'm a ghost, your life's going to get complicated because it's just okay. going to be me talking to you 25-7, 366 days a year, eight days a week. It's that is over some ghost for you. Logic. <laughs> That's just you trying to get me to become a ghost with you. By occupying all of my existing <gasps> oh my time. God, one of those awful but interesting stories where the ghost's like, I love you so much. Come be a ghost with me. But mm -hmm. the reality of that is you need to die. Yeah. Oof. I mean, I wouldn't even have to do anything, really. I'd just have to be like, hey, you want to walk down these stairs, babe? You're clumsy. Oh, it's true. It fell down <laughs> the stairs a little while ago. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Tell me about your, your super cool lady. Okay, so my my historical figure who I knew before Tim, ha ha ha, um, is Julie Daubney, the mm -hmm. 17th century swordswoman, 
opera singer, arsonist, and wooer of everyone. I'd love to hear it. I love this woman. Tracy loves this woman. And because of my triumph over Tim in a competition he didn't know was happening, uh, she was kind enough to let me cover her. So, <laughs> First of all, huge shout out to Extra Credits, the channel on YouTube, because they always have the most fun, comprehensive looks at history. And of course, we always love rejected princesses. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now for our French lady perfection. First, a quote. I'm not interested in being polite or heterosexual. Julie Dobney. I'm kidding. That's absolutely not something she said. <laughs> I, I would believe it. <laughs> um, I actually sourced that from incorrect history quotes, which is just a website that it riffs on famous historical figures. It's so great. And the, the truth of the matter is that it's very difficult to know what Julie may or may not have said during her lifetime. But here's another quote that is attributed to her and I think holds a little bit more water. I am made for perils as well as tenderness. Mm. She's holding a dagger. She's holding it to your neck. She says that quote, maybe. Ah, Could you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> so now that you have an idea of who we're dealing with, while there is debate about the actual timeline of her early life and nearly every element of her life, including her name, mm. we can trust that it went something like this. Julie Emily Dobney was born in 1673 to unusually perfect circumstances for her eventual badassery. Her father, Gaston Daubny, was the middle-class secretary of the Comte de Amniac, King Louis XIV's master of the horse. Yes, we're talking about Louis XIV, the Sun King. This wasn't the Louis that married Marie Antoinette. She's not even on the chessboard yet. But if you're imagining that Sofia Coppola movie, you are on the exact right track for the, the aesthetic. Okay, all right. Her father's secretarial position was even more important than it sounds. The royal stables of Versailles employed over 1,000 servants who worked to keep the king's mounts ready for various trips, hunting parties, wars, and jaunts. And this made it a fairly large cultural hub on the palace grounds. Gaston Dobney trained court pages, which allowed Julie to join in on the education. This meant that she was able to learn to read, ride, dance, draw, and, of course, wield a rapier. There's plenty of rumor that her father was a lover of drink, gambling, brothels, and other debauchery. But he lived in 17th century Versailles, which was arguably the largest frivolous display of wealth in the entire world at the time, if the reports were that he loved to sit alone in a room and cross-stitch, then I would be concerned. <laughs> mm -hmm. By the age of 14, she was having an affair with her father's boss, the Comte. Please keep in mind we are in 17th century France. She was his mistress, and he did what was very common in that day and arranged for her to marry Sir de Maupin, 
that man's usually described as timid and pretty uninteresting, and that made him the perfect rube. Julie was either married at the request of her father to maintain her virtue, or at the request of her lover, the Comte, so that she would be easy to access. Okay. Not long after their wedding, some say the next day, the Comte had Maupin sent away to the south of France to work as a tax collector. Julie chose to stay in Paris with her lover until she ran off with a new one. Mm -hmm. So Versailles is gone. Julie's new lover was a fencing master known as Seron. Because he killed a man in a duel, which was illegal at that time, the couple was on the run throughout France for almost all of their affair. But they earned money traveling from town to town, giving fencing demonstrations with Julie often singing. And it was during this time of tavern hopping that Julie began wearing men's clothing, but not specifically disguising herself as a man. I love that journey for her. A lot of articles compare her to Catherine Hepburn. She was wearing men's clothing, but she was still, you know, clearly mm -hmm. being a lady. There was a famous story from this time that says, during one of their demonstrations, a man heckled her because he could not believe a woman would have such skill with a sword. To quote rejected princesses, when a drunken onlooker proclaimed loudly that she was actually a man, she tore off her shirt, providing him ample evidence to the contrary. Which just goes to show you that like Anne Bonny and Mary Reed, historical women with swords must at all times be ready to bare their breasts. It's the rule, apparently. <laughs> so Julie, spitfire that she was, eventually grew bored with the fencing master. Next, she met a girl during her travels and they fell in love. This would go on to become Julie's most famous love affair. The girl's family did not approve of the same-sex relationship, so they sent their daughter away to live in a convent in Avignon under the watchful eyes of God and nuns. Mm-hmm. And Julie completely called their bluff and enrolled in the convent herself. And here's where things get spicy and famous. Under the cover of darkness, Julie dug up the body of a recently deceased nun from the convent graveyard. She hauled the body into her lover's room, laid it on the bed, set the building ablaze, and the couple escaped during the chaos. Tracy, how do you feel about her actions morally? <laughs> I wish you could see the face that Tracy's making. <laughs> because I wish I felt worse about it. It's so far removed from today's time. And as long as, I mean, if no one else was hurt in the fire. There's no reports of anyone being hurt, but I don't know whether that's because it was true or because the story isn't about kind of it yeah the story kind of needs it to not be true for right it's it not about her. the consequences of the fire right so i think as a story i love it very much and as a moral action for a character in a story it is so far from the moral event horizon as to not 
be concerned with crossing it. As an actual person, like if I knew her, I'd be like, yo, that's a lot. But I also don't live in 17th century Paris. Yes, there's also that idea of this woman living in exceptional circumstances in which she has very few rights taking Mm -hmm. an exceptional action to reclaim some of her agency. Mm -hmm. It's complicated. But because it is so far removed, and I'm buying into the narrative that not a single nun was harmed in the making of this history, (laughs) I'm, I'm in the Julie's a badass camp. Yeah. So her arsonist plan worked remarkably well. And the pair gallivanted around France for three months, after which time Julie's lover probably said, not unlike Tracy, wow, you're incredibly hot, but a little too punk rock for me, so I'm going home to my mom and dad. (laughs) (laughs) And she did. And in 1687, the girl's parents, enraged that this godless bisexual swordswoman got the better of them, took the case to court, and Julie was convicted of body-snatching, kidnapping, and arson in absentia. Apparently, she was convicted under the name Sir de Montpin. Keep in mind, no one really wanted it to become super public that A, becoming a nun doesn't bless the gay out of you, and B, Women can and will bust out of convents and escape justice for an extended period of time while riding around still super gay. Nevertheless, the punishment for this crime was to burn at the stake. Because history loves to burn women with agency at the stake. Yep. You have a thought? Burn it. Burn them at the stake. (laughs) I don't know why I'm laughing. (laughs) It's uncomfortable. It's an uncomfortable reality. (laughs) But during this time, Julie was still a free woman, now more ferociously awesome than ever. Here, we quote Kelly Gardner, the author who, while writing the fictionalized book of Julie's life called Goddess, visited every known location of Julie's exploits and examined primary sources. Quote, She took singing lessons from a retired teacher, Merchal, and paired up with a new lover, Gabriel Vincent Therevnard, who also fancied himself a singer. Together, they returned to Paris, and on their first day there, while Julie was visiting her old lover, de Amniac, to convince him to arrange a pardon for her little indiscretion in Provence, Therevnard auditioned for the opera and was hired immediately. His condition was that Julie also be allowed to audition, and the opera reluctantly agreed. So by the age of 17, she found herself as a member of one of the world's greatest musical companies. She was pardoned for her crimes by the king and went on to become a star, appearing in all of the opera's major productions from 1690 to 1694. She became adored and celebrated. She became La Maupin. (laughs) She busted her hot girlfriend out of a convent that she burned to the ground before she was 17. (laughs) I have to imagine that a person like her, who is so fantastical and who has stood the test of time in story, 
couldn't be that pleasant to actually know. Oh my god, no, she must have been horrendous. Right? I just, I can't, I mean, you know, the idea of her, her lover leaving and me like, I gotta go back to my parents. Like, I can just, she must have been, I just imagine her, as amazing as she is, she had to have been combative. You gotta imagine hot-headed. Probably not the best communicator. You will learn, as I continue to tell her story, that her romantic relationships did not last very long. Uh, yeah. Which I think is evidence to your point. <laughs> I would say, though, given the opportunity, I would spend three months of my life dealing with her hot-headedness to experience the crazy that was her adventures. Mm, I love reading about her in story. I wouldn't want to know her in reality, I think is how I feel about it. And therein lies the fundamental difference between Tracy's and my social interactions. <laughs> I think three months would be my max, though. Probably because we'd fight. I think I'd fight with her, and she... No, you absolutely would. She would kill me with a sword. You <laughs> would have that enemies to lover moment with the dagger, for sure. Except I... I'm not equipped. I mean, I I have some skill with a sword, actually, but this girl. He, yeah, he, no, it's it, it ain't nothing compared to her. Right. <laughs> there is a version of the story of her joining the opera in which the Comte, after being asked by Julie, goes to petition the king for her pardon. And then the king is the one who gets her the job at the opera. Because he just finds her so amusing. <laughs> Please remember that detail for later. Okay. Interesting sidebar. In her first show, Julie played the role of, quote, Pallas Athena, which I love for this sword-wielding queer woman. You love to see it. <laughs> Athena, patron saint of Julie Dolpney. Yes. As we continue this wild ride, it's going to be incredibly easy to forget, but Julie was married all throughout her adventures, despite the fact that she was addressed as Mademoiselle de Maupin for most of her public life. It was customary in France for female opera singers to always bear the equivalent title of Miss, M-I-S-S, no matter their marital status. Opera singers at the time had a very important place in society, and the king himself was Julie's patron, which increased her power even more. But let's talk about a few absolutely bananas stories that occurred during her time at the opera. I hope I can shock you with a few of these, Tracy. La Maupin was known for wooing both male and female members of the opera's cast, as well as protecting the women from the men's inappropriate behavior. At one point, a singer named Dumanil spoke inappropriately about many of the ladies, including Julie. She challenged him to a duel, but he refused. So she beat him with a cane and stole his snuffbox and watch. The next day, the sniveling coward told the fantastic story that he was attacked and mugged by a band of thieves. Julie said 
Dumanil, you liar and base coward. It was I alone who defeated you. You were afraid to fight, and so I gave you a sound thrashing. As proof, I return to you your miserable watch and snuff box. Oh, that is savage. I do like her a lot more knowing that she stands up for women. That's That makes me like her a lot more and feel like I would get along with her better. There are a lot of anecdotes of her using her skill with a sword and her fists to defend women. I love that. I do I do genuinely love that. And while I think that quote that I just read, probably a little bit creatively licensed. Uh, mm, yeah. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> it was from this experience that Julie learned to take trophies when she won duels so that she might proclaim her prowess and humiliate men who denied her. Mmm, smart. Another tale. One night after the opera, Julie was out and about when a man named Comte d'Albert began hitting on her. According to rejected princesses, she responded, I've listened to your chirping, but now tell me of your plumage. This delightful quip led to her fighting with him and his two friends. Julie won, as she always did, sending her sword through d'Albert's shoulder. He was sent to the hospital, where Julie eventually visited him, perhaps feeling remorseful, perhaps truly interested in his plumage. Though their affair lasted for only a short time, they stayed lifelong friends. That is a cool story of friendship. That's the enemies to lovers arc I found for you. (laughs) (laughs) The best is that it ends with a lifelong friendship, and that's the part I love the most. But Tracy, I have an even spicier version of it. There's a telling in which, after D'Albert ended up in the hospital, because there's no version in which he does not lose... Mm-hmm. His friends delivered an apology to Julie at his request, explaining away his bad behavior with drunkenness. She told them that she would reply to the Comte in person. So that night, she dressed up as a woman, stole into his hospital room, and they made passionate love. <laughs> this sounds like the spicy version for paperbacks, <laughs> but I really want that for her. <laughs> Yeah, she she can have a little bit of a, a spicy paperback as a treat. Her life was a little bit of a spicy paperback. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now for the incident that derailed her illustrious French opera career, at least for the time. And Tracy, I have stacked these in an order that was, I believe, timeline appropriate, but also for your listening pleasure. Oh, thank you. King Louis XIV's brother threw a ball at the Palais Royal that Julie was invited to. She came dressed as a man and proceeded to woo a beautiful young woman that more than a few gentlemen had their eye on. Well, Mademoiselle Maupin kissed the young lady in full view of the entire party, scandalous indeed, and three of those men challenged her to a duel. Not known for her patience, Julie marched them out onto the palace grounds 
and proceeded to beat all three swordsmen. Some say she killed them. Now, dueling at the time was very illegal, and it was viewed as a direct challenge to royal authority. Over the years, punishments for dueling had grown increasingly severe, and to be caught, let alone do it in the king's backyard, meant a death sentence. But the king only banished Julie. Apparently, he was entertained by the whole ordeal and basically said that, quote, the law applied to men and she was not a man. Ask not what you can do for misogyny, but what misogyny can do for you. <laughs> <laughs> There's also talk that the king's brother had something to do with this possible pardon. Also pin that detail for later. Okay. As Danny Kane, writing for Medium, said, Next, she, quote, fled to Brussels, where she became the elector of Bavaria's lover for a time. After a while, though, she proved to be too much for him, and he offered her 40,000 francs to leave. Indignant, she threw it at his groin and left for Madrid. What kind of person do you have to be and who do you have to be sleeping with for them to offer you money to go? I told you, she seems like a rough person to know. Like, not in an entirely good or an entirely bad way. Just a lot. I get the sense as I go through this story that aside from the the possibly sweet young girl who got sent to that convent, mm-hmm. uh, no one in this story is not an irascible son of a gun. Mm-hmm. Yes. Everyone's whipping out their swords, and I mean swords and swords, mm-hmm. left and right. <laughs> <laughs> now in Madrid, Julie was living a bit less high on the hog. She took employment as a lady's maid to the Countess Marino, whom she hated. As the Countess equally reviled our young female rake the night before julie left or was cast out depending on who you talk to she styled the countess's hair with radishes in the updo as the story goes when the woman went out to her evening everyone could see the vegetables protruding from her locks and mocked the countess though she had no idea until it was too late This tale is somewhat debated, but it just really fits into the narrative. (laughs) It does. It does. Radishes? You just got to stick some vegetables in someone's hair. Sometimes that's the best revenge. (laughs) Watch out, Tracy, now that I know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, radishes, turnips, parsnips, whatever you got handy. Only root vegetables. Only (laughs) Only root vegetables are good for hair revenge plots. Wait for it. You gotta maintain your roots. God damn it. (laughs) (laughs) Please go on. (laughs) (laughs) Eventually, La Montan would return to France in 1701. This time, she reunited with her husband, though this in no way kept her from her revelries. For all we know, her husband was like, hi, nice to see you. Go away. I know. Just kind of like everyone else. (laughs) 
Julie took up her opera career again, even performing at Versailles for the king, who clearly did not hold a grudge. She continued to duel and brawl with other actors. Once, she actually stabbed herself with a dagger during a performance on stage. What the heck? Yeah, not great. She attacked her landlord, threatened to shoot a duchess in the head, and even bit the ear of her old friend Therevnard so hard that it drew blood, also on stage. Oof. I'm not going to say she's mentally healthy. No, no, I would go so far as to say she's probably not, but... That has nothing to do with her bisexuality. No, absolutely not. And <laughs> not that you ever implied it did. I just feel the need right, to right. clarify. You can be bisexual and also mentally unhealthy. They are neither linked nor mutually exclusive. Look me in the eyes and tell me you've ever met a mentally healthy bisexual person. <laughs> I cannot, madam. I cannot. (laughs) Continue. (laughs) I'm also going to say, though, that exceptional times. I'm not I'm not saying they call for these particular exceptional measures. But 17th century France was not. A walk in the park for nobility or commoners. For no, two but totally she made a, different reasons. She she made a good life for herself, like a fun, tied-to-no-one kind of life. Like, in a time when you had, as a woman, you had to be tied to a man in order to survive, she survived quite well. And this is not a one-to-one comparison, actually, in any way whatsoever, uh, because they took place in both different countries and different time periods, but everyone's got Bridgerton on the brain. Okay. Yeah. So that's a really good glance at just what the heck women were dealing with. Mm -hmm. I googled so much about birth control during that time while watching Bridgerton. (laughs) Ladies had to use the rinds of lemons, which gave them infections that killed them. Oh, no. It was not a good time. No, I... I didn't need that knowledge, and now I and everyone listening is cursed with it. I don't care how many sequins or sparkles or whatever you put on your dress. It's not a good day. No. So, though we are not talking about Regency-era politics, I do think for anyone who is less familiar or just can't get the Bridgerton soundtrack out of their head, it is a good way to think about kind of what Julie is gallivanting through. Mm Mm-hmm. Also, if Julie were alive today, I don't know that she would be super satisfied with 2021 politics for women. No, no. I think no. she's the kind of person where no matter when she lived, she'd be pushing the boundaries of anything acceptable. Uh, you get me. Thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Some say that the love of Julie's life came in 1703 in the form of Madame la Marquise de Florensac. She was famously wealthy, very promiscuous, and so beautiful that she 
also had to flee to Brussels at one point when the Dauphin became obsessed with her. By all accounts, this was de Florensac's first lesbian affair, but Julie's bright blue eyes, dark auburn hair, and fantastic personality won her over. The couple lived together shockingly quietly for two years until de Florensac became ill with fever and died. Oof. This broke Julie's heart, and La Maupin retired from the stage. Truly, every source comments rather dramatically about how odd it was that Julie settled down for two years. Mm-hmm. Chilled out. Just with this one person, no affair that she had ever had before lasted that long. Yeah. And she was crushed when this woman died. And apparently she died very quickly. I have no way of confirming this, but I read a couple times that she got her fever and died within a couple of days. I'm not surprised. That was not that uncommon. No, and it's heartbreaking to think about. Mm-hmm. While many sources say that by the end of her adventures, she checked herself into a convent, mm-hmm. this is likely men manipulating her life into a moralistic lesson for other women so that they do not take up arson, sleep with women, and burn down the patriarchy. <laughs> Boring. On her death in 1707, at the age of 37... Oscar Paul Gilbert, author of Women in Men's Guise, wrote that she was, quote, destroyed by an inclination to do evil in the sight of her God and fixed intention not to do it. Then he states, quote, her body was cast upon the rubbish heap. Middle finger to this guy in particular. How likely do you think that is? Because no one knows what happened to her body to this day, but I'm not buying rubbish heap. She was a middle-class woman affiliated with the king. It depends on where she was at the time. Like, if it was something they could have gotten away with and people were really pissed at her, maybe. I think maybe she was given a kind of... If she if she died at a convent, I think she might have just been given a kind of anonymous burial in the church graveyard. You're right. I'm probably just indignant because I think she's so cool. The fictional version of her is very cool anyway. The convent element is hotly debated. Everyone loves to talk about it because she once burned down a convent and then she retired to one. Yeah. And on the one hand, I buy it because the idea of a convent is that you cannot be accessed by people that want to sleep with you. Mm-hmm. And if her heart is broken and she's, you know, tired of doing her thing, then that might be the move. On the other hand, I can see why taking this 37-year-old woman who just was abhorrent to all of the traditional standards of the day, and then saying that she found God and repented. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, that, that is clearly propaganda by that man in particular. <laughs> As our friend Kelly Gardner says, of the difficulty parsing reality from posters and pamphlets of the 17th century, quote, imagine trying to make sense in a few hundred years of news reports written now 
about performers. Though historians note that there were other women who lived together in clearly romantic relationships at the time, and Julie wasn't the only female duelist, she had a knack for using the politics of the era to her advantage. This part excites me. Okay, Danny Kane said, quote, 17th century France was a unique time and place in history, and one of the few places that allowed openly bisexual, gender-nonconforming people like Julie Daubny to exist. Louis XIV was her patron, partly in his ongoing efforts to undermine the political power of the church through the arts, opera being one of the battlegrounds in the war of artist patronage. He also couldn't take too strong a stance against being gay, since his brother, the Duke of Orleans, was openly gay, effeminate, and a crossdresser. Julie was less a product of her time and more a woman who knew how to use the time she'd been born into to be the person she truly was. To clarify, when King Louis XIV took the throne, he was four years old. And aristocrats at the time were rebelling on the grounds that the crown was encroaching on the rights of nobles. So King Louis spent his life consolidating power and reinforcing the idea that he was a monarch by divine right. To do this, he used the arts, architecture, the opulent theatricality of royal life to convince the nobility, the public, and the church of his God-given title. This is the behavior that earned him the title of the Sun King. Now, King Louis XIV was a religious man. But he was also aware that, quote, divine right monarchy itself challenged church authority, to quote extra credit. And frankly, he didn't want the meddling in politics. So we have a divine right king, working alongside those who follow a divine right pope and similarly God-granted religious officials. So between these two factions, it was all smiles to the face and screwing one another over behind the scenes. To quote extra credit again, this rivalry played out in the world of artistic patronage. Louis realized that if he underwrote artists who were critical of power structures, they would focus their ire on the church instead of the throne. Therefore, it was in his best interest to encourage artists who were irreverent, satirical, or even scandalous. People, in short, like Julie. The opera at the time was important artistically, but also politically, as shows there could easily sway public opinion. It was able to present stories that spoke to modern issues within the guise of story, much like the Globe during Shakespeare's time in England. Interestingly, King Louis would even perform in operas himself, as he dearly loved it, as well as dancing ballet. Now, I'm not saying that in this current 2021 political climate, that rich and powerful people should patronize subversive artists to make statements using their craft. But I'm not not saying it. You know, we, we're not not saying that rich people shouldn't pay us a lot of money to take down the patriarchy. Like, I'm not not saying that. Right. You know? Mm-hmm. 
The other important element that allowed Julie to be openly bisexual and dress in men's clothing was the king's brother, as I said. Philippe was openly gay and very much enjoyed women's clothing. It was not a secret. If the Sun King cracked down on the gay community of the time, there would be consequences for his brother. Good for him for loving his brother enough to take that stance. People, there are people today who would cast their own brother aside. I'm not sure that it's love, though. Because his whole thing is, I'm a divine right monarch. And you can't say that your brother is less divine Mm. than you. Because Mm. then what does that mean for your own power? So you can't say anything bad about the gay community because that would mean that as people often love to claim in the Bible Belt, it's a mistake of God. But at the same time, the, the, the church could have used that against him, and the safest thing would have been to separate himself from it. Like, you could argue the other side of it, too, and he didn't separate himself from that. That's true. That's a good point. Who would have thought that we'd be patting Louis XIV on the back? Oh, I got some fun stories for Louis the Fourteenth, but we don't have time for me to get into it today. But there are some fashion things. There were some fun yes, medical history so things. So much fashion. Oh, my God. We should do an episode where you cover him. Well, yeah, we need to cover him because I think he's the one who made the nobles plan so many parties so that they'd be too busy planning parties to rebel against him. Yes, absolutely. Can confirm. <laughs> <laughs> In conclusion of my history portion, Julie was a wonderful, powerful, bad ass of a woman. This was largely due to the fact that she was able to manipulate the politics of the time to her benefit. She was born within Versailles and spent her entire life utilizing her privilege and knowledge of the court and its politics to live a radical life. This story would be very, very different if she was in a different tax bracket. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, are you ready for a story? I'm so ready. My story this week is titled Julie Dobney's 13-Step Guide to Burning Down the Patriarchy. One, receive an education. I recognize that this may be difficult for some, but it is vitally important. Of such paramount importance that it is worth your very life, I would say. Learn to dance, sing, play an instrument, cheat at cards. But above all, learn to read, write, and speak insults so sharp they flay the very skin of any man who dares to question your brilliance. And do it with a smile. Two. On the subject of education, learn to defend yourself. What I mean to say is, carry a sword. But fists are equally viable, everyone loves a dagger. The point is this, have one and know how to use it. Burning down the patriarchy is dangerous work and men do not get into measuring contests with a blade. Three, be confident, my dear. This one is obvious, but you need to know, deep in your heart, that by the time you're done spinning out your mortal coil, the patriarchy will be naught but a pile of ash blowing away in the breeze. 4. Similarly, be beautiful. And I don't mean rouge your lips or wear the latest fashions. 
You may do that if you like, if it brings you bliss. But what I'm talking about is the beauty of the sun in the sky. Dress how you like, look how you like, but walk around every day of your life with the knowledge that you are the very best and only version of you that there will ever be. You're so stunning that to look directly at you will burn men's eyes from their skulls. So they must always avert their gaze for want of your warmth. And if you're absent from their lives, well, it's going to be very cold and desolate indeed. 5. Make love. I include this because I don't want you to believe that burning down the patriarchy is all work and no play. Could you imagine? We all finally accomplish our goals and have no happiness to show for it? Absolutely not. Our revolution is the meat and potatoes. But sex is the spice of life. 6. Beat men at their own game. Learn what men are good at, what they tie their entire self-worth to, then do it better. Simple as that. Consider beginning with the sword. Or wooing women. Dealer's choice. 7. Collect female allies. See also, number 5, make love. When you find yourself in competition with other women, bear this in mind. When women are fighting one another, they cannot fight the men. Who do you think has the most to benefit from this situation? Ah, yes, now you see. Find your allies, build an army, and win the war together. And don't forget, making love is the spice of life. And in the world of spices, women offer the most flavor. 8. Collect male allies. I see your frustration with this one, but here's the thing, love. Men aren't really our true enemy. The patriarchy is. Men are just soldiers and as much victims of their own game as we are. So within this category, there are two types of men. The willing ally, who knows what he brings to the table and chooses to use his power for your advantage. And the unwilling ally. Put your education and cunning to good use with this one. Maneuver the men to your ends. It's fun, I promise. 9. Wear pants. Truly, wear what you like. But women have all the fabric and layers of dresses, and men get coats and trousers with pockets. It's a humble recommendation from a woman of the opera, but I stand by it. 10. Sometimes you must lose the battle to win the war. I hate to say this, especially because I am famous for winning every duel I've ever been in. But here's the thing. Those are only the ones people know about. And anyways, sometimes you have to run off and romp around in Brussels for a while before you can come back to France bigger and badder than ever. 11. Remember, nothing is permanent. Not your marriage, not your job, not your station, not your misfortune, not your 
good fortune. Again, you can always run off and find a lover in Brussels or Madrid. See also number five, make love. Twelve, if God can't stop you, no man can. Let me be specific here. Did they send my beautiful girlfriend away to a convent? Yes. Did that stop me from following her so that we could throw off our nun's habits and make sweet, hot love in a confessional? <laughs> Absolutely not! If your personal relationship with the big man in the sky is unaffected by your behavior, let no man on earth stand in your way. 13. This one is controversial, but perhaps most fun. Commit arson. Why not? It's shocking. This behavior is not for the faint of heart, but I'm going to assume that if you're reading this pamphlet, you are not a wilting violet. Now, most people are afraid of fire. And it makes sense. A fire is going to burn them. It is going to destroy everything they've ever owned. Everything they've ever made. The single focus of any person encountering a blaze is a desperation to quickly put it out. When you see that desperation, the wild animal panic they have to halt anything you're doing, that's how you know you're on the right track. So when you're doing one of those destructive things that scares men, like burning down a convent to rescue your lover. Be not afraid. Remember, your fire will not burn you. It is the tool of your success. You are the master, and it is the hungry dog that is going to devour your enemies. <laughs> you need not panic. There's nothing it can burn that you want to save. So fear not, my friend. You are the flint, your circumstances are the steel, and the patriarchy is the dried-out husk of oppression that's going up in flames. My favorite part of all of that is that I want to print that out and hang it up as my <laughs> 2021 aspirations and goals. It works just as well for the 17th century France and 2021 America. Because she's so characterized in mm -hmm. modern day, it kind of afforded me the opportunity to make her wise, but also violent, like extreme. <laughs> like, Julie, you're on the right track. It's just like damp it down a little. And I also yeah. love the idea that Julie is saying, you know, we're going to mess it all up. Everything's going to hell, but we are going to make love a lot while yes. we do it. <laughs> I will close by saying, if you want to read more about Julie Dobney, there's tons of adaptations of her life. Most of them are highly fictionalized. Of course, we have Kelly Gardner's book, Goddess, which is openly fictionalized. Uh, I haven't read it, but according to the Amazon reviews, it's not that spicy which I think, mm. opportunity lost. The 
earliest adaptations of her life were published in 1835 and were very quickly banned by the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice. Oh my god. Which, you know, are we surprised? No. No. There have been adaptations throughout time, miniseries, TV, multiple musicals, and in 2020, just before the pandemic, one opened up at my local theater, The Gavin, in L.A., and it was called Revenge Song, and it was a punk rock musical. Oh, I love that. I don't really know what happened to it, given the pandemic, mm-hmm. but there you go. There's my punk rock, sword-fighting, patriarchy-burning, bisexual goddess of the 17th century, Julie Dobney. I love that. She's amazing. I'm really excited to kind of see the differences between the two women that we're talking about, because spoiler alert, I'm also talking about a lesbian woman in history. The woman who was known as the uh, first modern lesbian. What? So let's get into it. Okay. (laughs) So today I'm going to be talking to you about Anne Lister, otherwise known as Gentleman Jack. I know about Yay. Yay. I know the log She's holding, line Rowan's of her. holding her, th- her, her thumb and pointer finger very closely together. You mean this isn't a visual medium? Darn it. Yeah, weirdly, I, it's not. I know the log line of her life, so I'm really excited. Okay. We'll start with a quote from her diary. I know my own heart and I know men. I am not made like any other I have seen. I dare believe myself to be different from any others who exist. August 1st, 1823, from Anne Lister's diary. According to the research website dedicated to her life, Anne Lister is now known as the first modern lesbian. She was a wealthy, independent landowner who was renowned in her time for dressing always in black without bothering to indulge in the feminine frills like the others of her sex. She was the 19th century equivalent of a, quote, butch lesbian and she became known to the locals as Gentleman Jack. Her lesbian lifestyle, however, was one of the best-kept secrets of her time. (laughs) Rowan's looking at me very confused. (laughs) I'm looking at you confused because there's such a history in, you know, the butch lesbian fashion of it being A, personal fashion choices, and B, Mm -hmm. a way to signal to other women that you're attracted to women. And it can be both and it can be none of those things. Yeah. But the idea that it was the best kept secret. All of that, everything I just read you was an exaggeration. She, she, She definitely, I would say, was closer to the 19th century equivalent of what we would modernly think of as butch, but she was not in it. Like, she, she... She dressed in all black and didn't wear any frills, but still wore the women's garment of her time. Oh. We do love all black, though. It was all black, which I loved. Her her lifestyle was less one of the best-kept secrets of her time and more a very carefully tucked-away fact about her. Not by her, but by kind of the people around her and the people who followed her. Quotes from you are so soothing to me, and I'm so ready to fight quotes from other people. Very, very interesting. (laughs) Let's not dig into that, but let's dig in to the life of Anne Lister. 
Born as the eldest daughter and second child to John and Rebecca Lister, Anne Lister was born in Halifax, Yorkshire, on April 3, 1791. Her eldest brother John had passed away only within a year of his birth, leaving young Anne the eldest child of the family. Two years after her birth, her little brother Samuel was born in 1793. That same year, the family moved to Skelfler House in Yorkshire. In total, the Listers had four sons and two daughters, but only Anne and her younger sister Marion survived past 20 years old. At seven years old, Anne was sent to a school run by a Mrs. Hagues and a Mrs. Chettle in Agnesgate, Ripon. She was often rebellious and outspoken, even as a child. In 1804, when Anne was 13 years old, she was sent to the Manor House School in York, and it was here that Anne Lister met her first love, Eliza Rain. <laughs> Rowan's all excited. <laughs> I am excited. I want her it's to great. be happy. <laughs> Eliza Rain was the wealthy daughter of an East India Company surgeon, and she was Anne's roommate at the boarding school. By this point, Anne's constant rebellion had her placed in an attic bedroom so as to keep her away from the other girls and avoid influencing them. No, that's a reward. <laughs> that's is. a reward. It is. Because it allowed Anne and Eliza to start a relationship that no one knew about. They called their attic bedroom The Slope. And it was in this room that their relationship began. Anne Lister eagerly stepped into her sexuality and enjoyed her time with Eliza. However, two years after they met, Anne was asked to leave the school. And by the time she returned, Eliza had left. For Eliza's part, she never forgot Anne and hoped to live with her as an adult. However, as Anne began relationships with other women, Eliza grew overwhelmingly distraught. Eventually, she became a patient at the Clifton Asylum, and in 1860, she passed away at Terrace House in Osbaldwick. No, that whole arc was so predictable for the time, and it still hurt. I know. Anne, Anne Lister, similarly to Julie Dobney, kind of leaves a string of brokenhearted people in her path do we know if eliza was sent to clifton asylum to quote-unquote cure her of her sexuality no so so she wasn't um from what i could tell but what i left out there is that the doctor who took care of her was the father of ann lister's the love of ann lister's life and another woman that ann became entangled with, also was taken care of by that doctor at the end of her life. Oof. Oof. Yeah. Yeah. So here's another quote from Ann Lister's diary. Isabella, much to my annoyance, mentioned my keeping a journal and setting down everyone's conversation in my peculiar handwriting, which I call crypt hand. I mentioned the almost impossibility of it being deciphered and the facility with which I wrote and not at all shewing my vexation at Isabella's folly in naming the thing. Written on August 16th, 1819. Anne Lister's next love affair was with a woman named Isabella Norcliffe, known as Tib. I don't know why. <laughs> the two became friends in 1810 and remained friends and occasional lovers throughout their lives. However, it was Anne who refused to take Isabella as a life partner, causing a great emotional blow to Isabella, 
that sent her spiraling into drink. At drinking, and greatly disapproved of. It was Isabella, most likely much to her later distress, who introduced Anne to the great love of her life. Wow. It's already fascinating that Anne is in no way tied to that get married, have a family, make a baby, the first love is the only love kind of culture of the time period. Mm-hmm. Not at all. Which, you know, the, all credit to her, and it's interesting to see these other women who perhaps might have had that more infused into mm-hmm. their relationships. Yeah, Anne, Anne always saw herself as different. Um, she knew early on that she was gay, but there was no word for it. And so she called it her oddity. And to quote BBC, Anne's oddity intrigued her. She trawled books on anatomy to comprehend where her feelings came from, to no avail. But as she came to terms with her sexuality, there was no self-loathing. Her feelings were entirely natural, she believed. They were her God-given right. Advice from Julie Dobney to Anne? If God's not going to stop you, don't let any man stop you. (laughs) Yes. I love that Anne was just like, it's super cool that I feel this way. Like, I was meant to feel this way. It's That is groundbreaking in and of itself. If she never did anything historically noteworthy, the fact that an individual woman existed in that frame of mind during that time period is magnificent. Mm-hmm. I Anyone in the gay community to have that level of, or rather that lack of self-hatred mm-hmm. is... yes. So continuing the quote from BBC, women, while usually confused about their feelings for Anne, were typically captivated by her. Anne was promiscuous and arguably predatory, moving efficiently from one lover to the next without them penetrating her heart. End quote. Which is true. We'll see moving on. Anne really saw romantic relationships as a means to an end. Like, she enjoyed women and she enjoyed being with women, but... She wanted to climb the social ladder. She wanted to be powerful and strong. And so she didn't let these people get to her or emotionally affect her because if even if they were this wonderful woman, but they didn't have a lot of money, she was not interested in getting her heart broken by them. So she would have her fun with them, but ultimately they weren't beneficial to her. Right. She hadn't found her person that she just, you know, sat at the breakfast table like, oh, I love the way you chew toast. (laughs) Yeah. Except for one woman. Mariana Belcom. (laughs) She's known as M in Anne's diaries. Mariana Belcom and Anne met in 1814 when Anne was 23. They began a passionate affair which continued during Mariana's marriage to Charles Lawton. A marriage Mariana entered into for means and money. This marriage broke Anne's heart, and she saw it as a betrayal. BBC states that it was customary for female friends to accompany the bride and groom on their honeymoon, and it was Anne, along with one of Mariana's sisters, who endured the excruciating experience. On her return to Shibden, she spilled her rage onto the pages of her journals, accusing her formal lover of, quote, legal prostitution. Quote, 
she believed herself, or seemed to believe herself, over head and ears in love, she wrote, yet she sold her person to another, end quote. God, how brutal is that? And hypocritical. Of which person? <laughs> <laughs> it's hypocritical. Yeah. Yeah. It's hypocritical of Anne who used her own love life to climb the social ladder to say, I yeah, know. but now that you're doing it with a man, you're yes. she- prostitution? Are you kidding me? Yeah. I, I get it. Because when your heart is broken and then mm-hmm. why on earth did she have to come on the honeymoon? <laughs> That's cruel. Yeah, that part is cruel. Uh, very cruel. Could you imagine doing that today? Just like anyone, anyone you know, being dragged on their honeymoon. Even the person that you love most in this world being dragged on someone else's romantic vacation as the third wheel on purpose. Nightmare fuel. No. (laughs) To make matters worse, in 1820, Charles, Mariana's husband, caught an STI from a servant, which Mariana then passed on to Anne, who suffered from the, quote, venereal taint all her life. You know, I was wondering about venereal diseases when I was reading about Julie. There's nothing on it, but... Yeah. You'll see later on. We're really lucky to know as much about Anne Lister's life as we do. But moving forward from what I just said, between 1824 and 1826, Anne stayed in Paris, where she met Maria Barlow. The two enjoyed a love affair, but Barlow's status and financial standing did not meet Anne's standards and aspirations for a wife. It was at this time, while still maintaining her love affair with Mariana, that Anne decided she needed to find a wife who would allow her to climb the social ranks. In 1826, Anne Lister took control of Shibden Hall from her aunt and uncle, though she didn't officially inherit the property until her aunt's death in 1836. She ran the property. She also acted as landlord to the tenants, and it was this wealth that allowed her some measure of freedom to live as she pleased. To quote Wikipedia, In addition to income from the agricultural tenancy, Lister's financial portfolio included properties in town, shares in the canal and railway industries, mining, and stone quarries. Lister used the income from this varied portfolio to finance her two passions, Shibden Hall and European travel. End quote. She was a businesswoman. She ran Shibden Hall and was the landlord to all the tenants and was the one who went around collecting the rents, managing the books, and running the entire estate. To backpedal slightly, Mm -hmm. to then forward pedal a bit. (laughs) Okay. When you say she wanted to take a wife, are we talking just two women who happen to live together because they're such close friends and grow all together you know or is it yeah yeah yeah. okay 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 because i just wanted to you know she she wanted a wife you'll see she wanted someone who could combine power with her and they could you know love each other but also rule the world yeah the tiny world she i mean were it allowed she would legally marry a woman in a heartbeat and as close as she could physically get to legally being married to a woman she was going to do there was no like There was no like, oh, we're two spinsters who just happen to live together. It's, this woman is my wife. That's what I was asking. Cool. Yes. So Anne dressed in all black and preferred more masculine styles of clothing. And to once again quote the BBC, she said, The people generally remark as I pass along how much I am like a man. She confided that into her diary, 
the writing of which was a daily ritual. Quoting BBC, men would often jokingly proposition her as she walked by. Others sent her anonymous mocking and abusive letters. A practical joker had an advert placed in the Leeds Mercury in her name looking for a husband. They also gave her a cruel nickname. Gentleman Jack. Although, she didn't seem to really be that offended by it. She kind of saw everyone around her as beneath her anyway. And with my 2021 goggles, it's a pretty cool nickname. It is a cool nickname. Though, this nickname was often used as a warning. Fathers and husbands alike would, war- would be warned to not allow their wives and daughters to be left alone with Gentleman Jack for fear of her corruption. Don't go near the lesbian, it's catching. No, they'd be like, she'll seduce your daughter. Don't let her be alone with Gentleman Jack. Like, it was known, don't leave your daughters alone with Gentleman Jack. She will seduce them. Not so great for her game. It it didn't really cramp her style. (laughs) (laughs) Anne was also passionate about literature and used it as a way to test if a woman could be a potential lover. She would reference LGBTQ works of ancient Greek literature, her favorite, and gauge the other's interest. This was her litmus test to see if her advances would be successful. She was also fascinated with anatomy and often attended lectures in Paris, even once dissecting a human head. She was also the first woman to ascend Mount Perdue, the third highest mountain in the Pyrenees range. She, she, she's, she's making moves. <laughs> Although Anne Lister had met her future wife on more than one occasion in the 1820s, it wasn't until 1834 that Anne Walker took on a more substantial role in her life. Anne Walker was a shy, wealthy young woman from Lightcliffe. Walker had the social standing that Anne craved in a wife and the money to back it up. Walker was 12 years younger than Anne and took a while to warm up to Anne's advances. However, on Easter Sunday in 1834, Lister and Walker married in what is often cited as the first lesbian wedding in recorded British history. After selecting a pair of rings, they took communion together at the Holy Trinity Church in York. As far as they were concerned, this was their stand-in wedding ceremony. Though their marriage was not recognized by law at the time, if you visit the church today, you will find a rainbow-ringed plaque that reads, Anne Lister, 1791-1840, of Shibden Hall, Halifax, lesbian and diarist, took sacrament here to seal her union with Anne Walker on Easter, 1834. There's a lot of years in between when she did that (laughs) and when that plaque was put there. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it is there, so that's something. Good for her, and I'm going to keep my mouth shut on the rest. (laughs) Yeah, but so, like I said, as close as she could get to legally marrying another woman, she was going to do it. It's very brave. Mm Mm-hmm. So, Anne Walker and Anne Lister are now married, and people seem to know about it because so from this point on, we're going to refer to them as Miss Lister and Miss Walker, because that's kind of how articles do it, or they just call them Lister and Walker. Not Anne Squared. Yeah, they're both Anne, which is so frustrating. But Lister took over Walker's estates and ran them with her. I wish I knew more about specifically Yorkshire. 
during the time yeah. they were alive? I don't know much, but I can tell you that according to Mental Floss, Anne's notoriety only increased after she began her new domestic life with Walker. Lister took an active role in managing her significant other's estate, which was located near Shibden Hall. Soon, a dispute broke out over drinking well in Walker's land. Although residents of the broader community depended on that well, Lister considered it family property. So, to assert her control over the situation, she had a barrel of tar dumped in the water, making it unfit for consumption. In retaliation, effigies of both Lister and Walker were burned. Ultimately, a magistrate ruled that the water belonged to the public and that Lister's actions were unjustified. So she's not the best person. It's aggressive. She's very aggressive. She is someone I, I also think would not have been the most fun to know, but you rarely make history by being anything other than, like, like fun people rarely make history. Like, the people you actually want to spend your day-to-day -day time with rarely make history. Right. Fun in a good, healthy way, not fun in a, like, wow, that was a fun story to hear secondhand, very far away from it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> So, their marriage would last only for six years as Anne Lister passed away on September 22nd, 1840, at 49 years of age. Which I want to note, she also married at 43 years old. Yeah. And um, Anne Walker, her wife, was 30 and was 30 and unmarried at the time, which was pretty unusual. So, Walker and Lister had been traveling abroad and Anne Lister fell ill with a fever while the two were in Georgia and ultimately succumbed. Walker had her body embalmed and brought back to the UK, where she had Anne buried in Halifax, West Yorkshire. Her tombstone was covered in 1879 by the addition of a floor and was not uncovered again until 2010. Yes! 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 I'm not cheering for her death. I'm sorry. They covered her with a floor! Yep, they you... covered her grave with a floor and didn't find it again for almost 200 years. She was an awful house ghost, guaranteed. The worst. The worst house ghost. Oh my god, having the, the penultimate lesbian as your house ghost? <laughs> this woman who <laughs> poured tar in perfectly good drinking water? Wow! Yeah. So... Next, I'm going to do my story, and then I can tell you a little bit about the diaries that I hinted at earlier. Go for it. I'm still okay. living in scary <laughs> ghost. Yes. All right. So <clears throat> it's time for a story. August 8th, 1806. It was, I remember, raining quite terribly on the day that I was politely asked to leave the boarding school. It wasn't even a remotely interesting straw that broke the camel's back. All I'd been doing was showing another girl a particularly amusing sketch I'd done earlier in the day. It was a small drawing of our teacher. Not even a body one, just a drawing of her scrunched-up, angry little face as she spoke. Well, I put pencil to paper, and that was that. Goodbye boarding school. Goodbye sloping attic room with that tiny, stubborn little window. And goodbye, Eliza. That last one was the only loss that even approached something resembling a sting. She was the first girl I ever kissed. She was the first of many things in my life. First kiss, first touch, 
first love, and first loss. Before I met Eliza, I was so certain that something about me was wrong. But when my lips met hers for the first time, I realized that everything about me was just right. I was made to be exactly as I am. She looked at me as though I were a god. Aphrodite or perhaps Athena herself lying next to her in that bed. When I walked away from the boarding school and the rain beat down upon my shoulders, I realized that it was the look in her eyes that I would miss most of all. Eliza herself was suitable. I'd enjoyed her company well enough, but the realizations that she awoke in me were what I would miss most of all. It wasn't the sounds of her laughter or the feeling of her hands or even the words she spoke that I would miss. It was the intoxicating, all-encompassing power that she bestowed upon me that I would long for in her absence. I'd spent many years searching for that power again. May 18th, 1819. Paris, as it turns out, was much noisier than I expected. In the whole of the city, there were only a few places which were truly solitary. My favorite of these, aside from the university library, which housed a sizable collection of ancient Greek works, was the lecture hall. Though I spent hours there surrounded on either side by sweaty men with perfectly trimmed sideburns, I was truly alone. I mean that in the best possible sense of the word. Though they stared at me openly as though I were more interesting than the anatomy on display, I ignored them with ease. They were fools, all of them, if they could not see the wealth of information before them in the form of the slightly bloated corpse. She was magnificent, all bones and sinew and muscle and so very human. So alive in her death was she to me that I could focus on no other. So it was with genuine enthusiasm that I agreed to assist the professor in his dissection. All the men stared in horror as I, a woman, took the scalpel in my hand and ran it along the skin with ease. I saw no reason to be squeamish. The woman before me felt no pain, and this was finally my opportunity to learn. Why would I waste that time feeling anything but excitement? I traced the blade below her blue-tinged bottom lip and thought briefly of Mariana. The curve of their mouths was so similar that for a moment I hesitated in my actions. The professor... Mistaking my hesitation for disgust, tried to gently take the scalpel from my hand. But I pulled away, refusing to lose this opportunity over a woman I had not seen nor spoken to in over a year. A woman who betrayed my very soul the day she walked down that aisle. Mariana Belcombe was nothing to me now, no more alive in my life or in my mind than the swollen corpse before me. My heart died in my chest the day that she took her wedding vows. Watching her sell herself to that man, a man who cared for her no more than he did his prized cow, caused the final coating of ice to freeze over my already frigid heart. I would not love again. I could not. Not while the memory of our time together lived in my mind and blocked out anyone else from getting near me like I was in a gilded cage.
If I could not have her, then I would have another. But I would not marry just for love, and I would never, ever, as she did, sell myself to a man. I would have myself a wife. Though, just as any man would be expected to, I would not just have any woman. My wife would need to be a woman of wealth, means, and status. I decided right then in that lecture hall with a scalpel in my hand that I would be no different than any other man in that room. I would be calculating. I would be smart. I would be a businesswoman. And I would have myself a wife by my side. I found that the blade cut more easily after that. October 20th, 1832. Anne Walker seems to be warming to my advances. Though ever still a shy and quiet girl, she looks upon me with a growing warmth in her eyes. She admitted to me just the other day that she'd taken notice of me when we'd first met nearly ten years before. She'd had hopes ever since that day that the two of us should meet again. Her hands played with the lace at her sleeves, and all I could think was how much I wanted to take those hands in mine and press my lips to the fingers. They were always cold, Miss Walker's hands. She said she appreciated the warmth of mine wrapped around them as it helped relieve the ever-present chill in her. I wanted her to know that I knew many other ways to warm her, body and soul, but I was aware that delicate steps needed to be taken with such a flighty bird. So I smiled and told her that when I had returned to Shibden Hall and discovered that she was near, it filled my heart with warmth to know we could be friends. She insisted then with enthusiasm that we were indeed friends. In fact, she admitted that I was the closest friend she'd ever had more dear to her than anyone else had ever been. It was at that moment I knew that Anne Walker would be my wife. If it took me years from now or just another day, I was completely certain that she would be standing by my side as my bride one day. She was sweet and lovely, kind and demure, and most importantly, wealthy and connected. As I watched the autumn sunlight fall across the fabric of her pale pink gown, I felt an undeniable truth come to life inside of me. Sitting before me, hands delicately folded in her lap, was the woman I would one day marry. Unbeknownst to Miss Walker at the time, that was the moment she became my wife. And those are my snippets of my version of Ann Lister's diary entries. I loved the way that you gave us a picture of different acts of her life and mm-hmm. how she progressed from one woman to the next. I, I, we keep saying it, but this is not a woman I would want to know well. Right. <laughs> but she's so interesting. She, I could, if you wrote the whole book of her diary entries, and of course I know we're about to find out about her actual diary entries, but if it were as concise and clear Mm -hmm. and her motives were as beautifully illustrated as you made them, I'd flip through 200 pages of that in a night. Yeah, as a character, I love her. It's the same reason you love to read about these morally gray characters, but if, you know, you ever started dating one in real life, I would drag you kicking and screaming away from them because it's not a healthy (laughs) person to actually know. It's a problem with both of our picks for this week. They are 
larger than life now because yeah. history has made them that way and they're exciting and interesting and you can root for them you know we get to say yeah burn the convent down or yeah break that woman's heart be like a man but mm-hmm. truly they they did a lot of good for the world but some of the things they did were awful yeah mentally healthy stable people happy kind-hearted people rarely make history and there is a big difference between historical progress and individual human mm-hmm. happiness oh for sure so would you like to know why we know so much about ann lister yes i'm very envious all right We might never have known about the extent to which Anne Lister truly and powerfully rampaged her way across the world were it not for one woman, Helena Whitbread. Anne Lister is now famous for the fact that she wrote down nearly every detail of her life in a journal. Everything from the mundane to the most salacious details of her day-to-day experiences. This level of insight into her remarkable life is nearly incomparable. The diaries of her life totaled 26 volumes with 7,722 pages. An additional 14 volumes of travel notes also cover her overseas trips and her trips within the UK. She wrote every single day in her, her diary since she was a teenager all the way through to her death. And that is why we know so much about her. Much of what she wrote was in what she called her crypt hand, which was her secret, personal secret code. So all of the salacious details, anything she didn't want anyone else to know was written in crypt hand. But Helena Whitbread was not the first person to crack Ann Lister's diary code. That honor goes to John Lister and Arthur Burrell in 1890, nearly 70 years after Ann's death. John Lister was a descendant of Ann's family and brought in his friend Burrell to help him crack the code. Quote, After borrowing some of the diaries, he was confident he had worked out two coded letters, H and E. A tiny bit of paper, scribbled on by Anne and found hidden beneath the manor's house deeds, confirmed his suspicions. In God is my, it began, the final four-letter word in code. We saw at once the word must be hope, and the H and E corresponded with my guess, Arthur later recalled. With these four letters almost certain, we began very late at night to find the remaining clues. The two men were utterly shocked when they realized what the diaries contained. Anne had coded all of her romantic encounters behind the cipher, which they had just cracked. Burl asked Lister to burn the diaries for fear that they would ruin his family if published or discovered, but Lister no, couldn't do what? it. <laughs> yeah. It's still 1890. The idea of anyone finding this. I get the logic. I'm just so stressed. <laughs> we should thank Lister because he said, I can't do that. So instead, he just hid the diaries away at Shibden Hall. Oh, thank you. And they, that's where they stayed until 1933. After which, the diaries were discovered and gifted to Halifax Library. And Burl, who was now 80 years old felt honor-bound to give the council details of the cipher. The council declared that the material was unsuitable and would not allow researchers to publish anything that they felt was unacceptable, which was pretty much 
anything about the diaries. I detest people. I know. So thus, the secret of Anne Lister's life, which was barely a secret in her own time, was kept hidden until a 52-year-old teacher discovered it again in 1982. Now enter Helena Whitbread. Helena Whitbread completed her history degree later in life, having grown up relatively impoverished in Halifax. Ill health caused her to drop out of school at only 13 years old, and she did not pursue further education until she was 35 years old. She eventually graduated from university at age 52 and began to look for research projects near her home in Halifax. Let this be evidence that it is never too late to do what you want to do. This woman's amazing. The Ann Lister website has a series of videos of her at Shibden Hall giving lectures about different facets of Anne's life. Ugh, that's so cool. Yeah. Helena had known about Shibden Hall her whole life and had a passing interest in Anne Lister as the unusual woman who ran the home in the mid-19th century. She decided that research into this strange woman would be just the project to take on. She began reading Anne's diaries and noticed the large sections filled with ciphers and code. According to an interview with Whitbread, I was hooked, she says. What was she hiding? To quote the official Anne Lister website, Gradually, by painstakingly decoding each and every word of Anne's cryptand, Helena discovered the truth of Anne's lesbian sexuality, as well as Anne's views on men, money, business, and the society in which she lived. Anne, it turned out, captured in her diaries a journey of self-discovery and self-definition that was previously unheard of for a woman of her time. The word lesbian did not exist. Therefore, she was left to introspect and come to terms with her identity, which she did in a most impressive way. Helena quickly realized that this story was important. It painted a completely different picture than the woman in other popular and classic English novels of the time, including Jane Austen and the Bronte sisters. Helena saw Anne for what she was, a revolutionary in her time for women's roles, appearances, and behavior. Anne was bold, fiercely independent, a landowner, industrialist, traveler, and lesbian. Helena decided to share Anne's story with the world. Until then, Anne Lister's lesbianism had been suppressed or hinted at, but this was the first time her story had been told. End quote. I love that comparison to Jane Austen and the Bronte sisters because it was the same general time period, and we only see it through that more or less Bridgerton lens. Exactly. And, I mean, this episode for the two of us is either write a diary of every moment of your life to become famous, or do not write a diary of your life to become famous. Yeah. <laughs> Either way, you're going to be highly fictionalized. Mm-hmm. So BBC also states that until then, clear evidence of sex between women had been absent from the historical record. Anne's journals detailed a lesbian lifestyle many thought had not existed in the past. Her promiscuity showed not only that women found her attractive, but that sexual lesbian desire had been far more commonplace than was thought. Anne's diaries and their explicit sexual details was so shocking that some even believed they were a hoax. 
It was no exaggeration when the writer and historian Emma Donahue described the Lister Diaries as the Dead Sea Scrolls of lesbian history. (laughs) That is a charming comparison. Yeah. The culture at the time really did emphasize, like, you should spend a lot of time with female friends before you're married. You should really spend all your time with women before you're married. And Lister's diaries showed that a lot of women took very strong advantage of that. Absolutely. And the fact that the men didn't catch on is frankly shocking. And a it's testament ho- to how hilarious. good these these women and girls were at sneaking. Congratulations. Or the idea that everyone just thought they'd be complacent and there was mm-hmm. no need to sneak because there wasn't enough attention paid. Yes. I think it was more that. I think it was, oh, good. She's chaperoned by this other woman. Let's just go leave for the hunting lodge. Thinking of these two women together in the same episode, Julie and Anne, they did live in different centuries, in different countries, but we are getting a very clear picture of history from one small portion of the world from a a fairly short time period in terms of human history, world history. Mm. And we're also getting a very similar snapshot of two wealthy white women Mm-hmm. very much so and so much of history in this regard is that of people who have means and you know that is, that is the way of things because education is costly mm-hmm. i keep thinking <laughs> about be gay, do crime. <laughs> Be gay, do crime. <laughs> and whenever I think about that phrase, I it strikes me that, you know, you know Stonewall comes to mind. The idea that yeah. even being gay is a crime and that the gay community is so often involved in protests that become a crime because... Mm-hmm. The establishment that is against them wants it to not be happening. And right. Julie, on one hand, is being being gay and committing literal crime. And I'm in this case, I mean crimes against humanity. Like oh, well, she's doing murder. Arson. Yeah, arson. Where, I get where you're going. Whereas Anne Lister's crime was existence. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Julie didn't quite. It was there, but quite have to do as many existence-based crimes because Mm -hmm. the politics of her time did shield her a bit. Oh, yeah. Whereas we have Anne, who was in no way shielded by politics. No, she lived in the heart of Victorian England. I mean, we're talking eight... She was born in 1791, and all of her marriage took place in 1834. I mean, at this point in English history, sleeves are big, minds are small. That's where we're at. Put it on a t-shirt. <laughs> I know more about fashion history through the 1800s in England than one person should. And that's not to do with researching this episode. It's just from random YouTube rabbit holes. Fashion's a really good way to look at history, actually. It tells you a lot about people's values and goals. Yeah. I, but I see the big crime of Julie's fame burning this convent mm-hmm. and this audacious crime from Anne of pouring tar in a well that people rely on. 
And I have to wonder if they are both somewhat vengeful acts that were taken on society at large for not just allowing them to exist the way that they wanted to. I have to imagine a huge part of Anne's existence was just anger at the world for not just accepting her being who she was. And living in that mindset where you don't get to love who you want to love, well, then you don't get right. to have the water that you want to drink. That that jump is not very far, actually. No, especially when you see that, that, that anger and hatred did not get turned inwards to herself. She didn't think the problem was her. And it wasn't. I, I bring that up because I was thinking about it a lot when I was writing... Julie's 13 Steps to Burning Down the Patriarchy. Just the idea, you know, you're not going to let me love this young woman. Well, you don't get to safely worship the God you want to worship. It's that kind mm-hmm. of taking taking away of, of rights. And when someone is punching down, and in this case, I mean the politics of each time period, punching down to the gay community, then there's this violent scrabbling that often comes of it of just trying to get back up yeah yes yeah and then that that gets turned into you're being so aggressive like there's also the like you're 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 being aggressive you're angry why are you so angry why are you so why are you fighting so much when you're fighting for basic human dignity to be shown your way and so when i see the other side of the internet going, you know, be gay, do crime is so horrible. You're encouraging people to commit <laughs> crimes. It, mm, <laughs> no. No. In fact, please do be gay and do crime because, you know, you get to have basic human dignity. Here's the order in which you should do things in your life. <laughs> Let's <One>. go. <laughs> the top one is lead with kindness. In your heart, lead with being good to yourself, lead with attempting to see the best in others, immediately under that, be gay, do crime. If you do that first one first, you get to be gay and do crime. What I just heard was compassion, arson. <laughs> yes. <laughs> if you have compassion, then you can do arson is what I'm saying. <laughs> Hozier would be proud. Oh. I just sometimes I just want to stand in the forest and wait for Hozier to magically appear out of the mist for me <laughs> <laughs> as the old god he is. Uh, everyone wants the enemies to lovers. You want the the love affair that's filled with pacts and woods and Yeah, sometimes I just want to wear a long skirt and run out to the woods and wait for my fae to come take me away. I just want to run into the woods and be stolen away by a fae. I, you know, my first gut instinct to respond to you is to say, I think we can manage that. What? (laughs) (laughs) What? I'm a broken person. It's because you're my ride or die. You're like, I see that you have a want and I'm going to do what I can to make it happen. It's true. I tend to be a bit against ride or die. Like, well, no, where are we going? Are there going to be snacks? Like, no ride or die. But for you, I I do ride or die. In fact, I would say that I both ride 
and know inevitably that I will die because of that ride. <laughs> I would say it's because I'm one of the few people more neurotic about like caring for those around me than you. So it's like, oh, where are we going? Will there be snacks? And you're like, oh, Tracy already has too many snacks. I'm uncomfortable with the amount of snacks she has. I need to get her to calm down about these snacks so that we can get going on this adventure. Uh, yeah, I would actually see you that and raise it. I know you're going to have snacks. I know they're going to be snacks that I want. And I also know that you are going to give us the dramatic, fiery death that people who always have snacks do not often get to achieve. We work well together. You you push me to adventure. I'm very Hobbit-like where I just want to stay home and eat snacks and not have adventures. And you're the Gandalf who comes in and whisks me away. Never in my life, not not once, did I ever think that I would be compared to Gandalf? Um, what? <laughs> <laughs> I... You're welcome. I see it. I'm not upset, I guess. Um, <laughs> you should not be upset. But I want, for this episode, I am no man. Good. You can, you can have that AO in fantasy. <laughs> To wrap up Ann Lister, if you want to learn more, The Secret Diaries of Miss Ann Lister, The Secret Diaries of Miss Ann Lister Volume 2, No Priest But Love, and oh. Secret Diaries, <laughs> I know, and Secret Diaries Past and Present are all books that contain and cover the diaries and life of Ann Lister. Did they change publishers between book one and book two and then go back to the old publisher? Where did No Priest But Love come from? It's like the colon tagline of it. I don't know why, but I think it's so good. <laughs> <laughs> and in April of 2019, just days shy of being 228 years to the day since the birth of Ann Lister, HBO premiered the show Gentleman Jack. According to HBO, set in 1832 West Yorkshire, England, Gentleman Jack is inspired by the true story and coded journals of Ann Lister, played by Surin Jones, and follows her attempts to revitalize her inherited home, Shibden Hall. Most notably for the time period, a part of Lister's plan is to help the fate of her own family by taking a wife. In order to do justice to the characters and the broader LGBTQ community, and ensure the comfort of the actors, the show brought in Ida O'Brien as the first intimacy coordinator for the BBC. We love an intimacy coordinator. Holy... Mm -hmm. Yes, there was also an intimacy coordinator on Bridgerton. Frankly, mm -hmm. there is no excuse anymore in this yes. day and age. Sorry, please continue. No, that, <laughs> there, uh, the Hollywood Reporter describes Gentleman Jack as a funny, smart, and touching story, which at times has the main character talk to the camera to explain her inner thoughts, allowing aspects of Lister's diary to be used. The Guardian Review says that Surin Jones rocks Halifax as the first modern lesbian. Anne Lister's diary becomes a thrilling coal town romp that flirts with parody. So maybe it's queer Bronte. <laughs> <laughs> Which I loved. I've watched the first few episodes of Gentleman Jack, and it's very good. Very entertaining. When I watched it, it was airing. So I only saw the first few episodes, and then I, as I do, got distracted and haven't caught up. But it's... Very true. I will say from a fashion perspective, I could tell that it was set in 1830s England before I realized the time period based on the fashion. They're that accurate. Ooh. Well, you know what? I have HBO. I have to fold laundry. 
that'll be my night. Yes, it's very good. They it's it is it's got humor. It's very much a parody where uh, Ann Lister will turn and talk to the camera and use quotes from her diary to talk about her plans and her scheming, and then just turn and be back into the scene. And it's That's very fun. well done. Fleabag meets Outlander, like historical whatever. Yes, <laughs> it is very much like Fleabag meets Outlander. <laughs> <laughs> So go check out Gentleman Jack. And that is my story of Anne Lister. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. What? <laughs> Rowan. Yeah. Will you be my Valentine? It gets you nothing. I give you nothing. Literally nothing changes between us except you get to say that you're my Valentine. I don't even get one of those crappy half-melted Jolly Rancher lollipops stuck to a card. This is nothing? Nope. No, I want a valentine (laughs) of good station. (laughs) Fair enough. Well, since you will not be my valentine, will you tell me something good? (laughs) I will. My something good is that I said no to Tracy (laughs) Fagnon. My something good this week is that my COVID pod and I got to repod. Everyone's quarantined and COVID tested, so we got to hang out in person again. And wow, I'm an introvert, but I got a weird amount of energy from getting to see Mm -hmm. (laughs) people, getting to see humans. And it happened to be lovely, Kaylee and lovely Sage, and we had a game night. And well, everyone knows by now, all my friendships, all Tracy's friendships, we're all just powered by games. Oh, my God, yes. So it was, I say this 100% ironically, it was good, old-fashioned fun. (laughs) I remember two years ago, well, a, a year and a few ago, when we could have fun together. (laughs) <laughs> I know. The very last thing my friends and I did before quarantine, the, I mean, mere days before lockdown in March of last year, was get together for a St. Patrick's Day game night. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good choice for St. Patrick's Day. We didn't want to go out, so they all came to my house that I had recently bought and recently moved into. Uh, I made a cake. I used letters to spell out uh, Corona time because it's at in March of 2019, that was a funny goof. Oh, ow. That yeah. didn't age well. Did not <laughs> age well at all. We talk about it. We talk about how poorly that joke aged. I'm also going to throw this out there for another something good that happened to both of us just before we started this recording. But our friend Emily is kindly arranging for us all to be able to send letters mm-hmm. to... um a nursing community during COVID. And I'm so excited about that. Yeah, it's set up so that it's one letter a month for as long as we're in lockdown. And letters are just the best. Yes. And you have a wax seal kit, so, I mean... I've used it twice now. Um, Okay, so I'll jump... Ask me a question. Milady, tell me something Mm -hmm. good. Okay, so (laughs) my something good is that I went to Adagio Tees... And you can make custom tea blends. And I made myself some custom teas based on my D&D characters, as well as 
Harrowhark Nona Jasimus from <gasps> Harrow the Ninth, which is my favorite one um, because it, it is a lavender and chocolate Earl Grey, which is so good. I normally would not think that it would be good. It's like a very creamy. It's so good. But I'm heartbroken. Then, I'm so against lavender. Oh, you can't. I don't love lavender. It's You don't taste it very much. It was just that it works. Trust me, because I don't love lavender. I'm on a fight to destroy lavender and rose in food. Continue. Continue. Anyway, um, it is this very earthy earl gray. And then you can pick what they put kind of on top as like a mix-in topping. And I Mm -hmm. chose coconut shards. So I put it in a glass jar and it looks like bone shards in dirt. And it tastes amazing. And then I use my wax seal kit on top of the glass jar to seal it with my little stamp. And... It was the nerdy, witchy moment of my dreams. Wait, does that mean you can't drink it? You sealed it no, shut? No, because it didn't, it didn't drip okay. down the sides. It just stayed on the very top of the lid. Um, good work. Also, good choice <sighs> yes. on Earl Grey. Yeah. For it, she's a necromancer, in case anyone doesn't know what we're talking about. Fictional necromancer. She, this character is a necromancer who never sleeps, so I wanted to do this, like, caffeinated tea that resembled that. I did it for... My D&D character, I did another one for Gideon as well. That one is a cinnamon chai tea. <laughs> Why? Because she's a ginger. <laughs> yes. So it, it was just like I geek out over stuff like that. And then I um, they all came in and they're so delicious and they're all different. And I've been really enjoying them. And I've been putting them in glass jars and sealing the top of the glass jars with my wax kit. Because I need to use it for something. Tracy... No one would know this about her, no one who listens to this podcast, as we do not exist in the visual realm. Um, Tracy is creating a home that looks as if an alchemist who is both a master of the scientists and a practitioner of magic has simultaneously created the most orderly system of living and the most disorderly system of living (laughs) all in one giant jewel-toned bundle. Yes, I want my home to feel dark and inviting. I want you to feel welcomed in my home and warm in it, but I also want skulls everywhere. So I have found a blend of those two drives. I've got dark green walls, gold accents for everywhere, and then there's just skulls and crystals and a mortar and pestle and wax-covered items strewn throughout the rooms. Swords on walls. and <laughs> I want to eventually live in a place where I can paint the ceiling. Yes, that's kind of a next thing I really want to do is do a ceiling painting. Actually, the next thing I really want to do is do a wall of bookshelves and get a um, shelf bookshelf ladder as well. Like I want a full floor to ceiling wall of bookshelves and display cases. I want it to be part bookshelf, part display cases so I can put more skulls in it. I can't believe all of this is part of your goals for life. And I didn't even get a melted Jolly Rancher lollipop and a half-assed card for this valentine's day malarkey what did you give me huh hmm? what did you give me I'd, what'd you send me i hmm? didn't ask yet <laughs> here i am pouring out my heart 
trying to be vulnerable and like our heroines, you took it in your hands and crushed it into dust. Oh, my darling, you know I love a challenge. It's on! This is the only way I'm going to participate in this stupid holiday. Thank you all for coming to Willing and Fable. <laughs> Thank you all so much for listening. And remember, stories grow with the telling. So if you like what we do, tell a valentine. Or tell a foe. That still stands up. <laughs> and uh, we'll see you soon. Okay? Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our music was written and performed by Taylor Ash, and our logo is by Jamie Harrison. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes, or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of ancient myths, local legends, and stories with staying power.